Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Hi, I'm back. While I was gone, my wife and I drove up to Philadelphia and saw some historic stuff up there. The Liberty Bell, the Betsy Ross House, Independence Hall, Carpenter Hall, the site of Ben Franklin's estate, and Franklin's gravesite. I had a genuine Philly cheesesteak, which, if I'm honest, tasted like every other cheesesteak I've ever had in my life, because, you know, there's only so much you can do with shaved meat and cheese. Then we drove up to Boston, saw all the history up there, the church where the two lanterns were placed for Paul Revere, the site of the Boston Massacre, the graves of Sam Adams, John Hancock, the five victims of the Boston Massacre, and Paul Revere. Here's a fun fact. Look up the grave of John Hancock. Just do it. Thank me later. Uh, I also had <laughs> a, an official Boston cream pie in Boston. I got it from the restaurant that originally created the Boston cream pie. And let me go ahead and tell you, it was the most boring dessert I've ever had in my life. Which I suppose, like, if it's the original, there's plenty of room to, like, improve upon it. So maybe that's it. But it was really, really boring. <clears throat> then off to Amherst to see the Emily Dickinson house. We visited her grave and left a pen and some scrap paper for her. This is apparently a thing you do with her grave. And then we went to the wedding we went up there for in the first place. The next day, we spent 17 hours driving back in one go, and I will never, ever do anything like that ever, ever again, so help me God. Anyway, I'm back and trying to get back into the groove of recording after doing absolutely none of it for a month. So let's just go. The Man of the Crowd by Edgar Allan Poe. It is well said of a certain German book that it does not permit itself to be read. There are some secrets which do not permit themselves to be told. Men die nightly in their beds, wringing the hands of ghostly confessors and looking them piteously in the eyes die with despair of heart and convulsion of throats on account of the hideousness of mysteries which will not suffer themselves to be revealed. Now and then, alas, the conscience of man takes up a burden so heavy in horror that it can be thrown down only into the grave, and thus the essence of all crime is undivulged. Not long ago, about the closing in of an evening in autumn, I sat at the large bow window of the D. Coffee House in London, for some months I had been ill at health, but was now convalescent, and with returning strength found myself in one of those happy moods which are so precisely the converse of ennui, moods of the keenest appetency when the film from the mental vision departs, and the intellect, electrified, surpasses as greatly its everyday condition as does the vivid yet candid reason of Leibniz, the mad and flimsy rhetoric of Gorgias. Merely to breathe was enjoyment, and I derived positive pleasure even from many of the legitimate sources of pain. I felt a calm but inquisitive interest in everything. With a cigar in my mouth and a newspaper in my lap, I had been amusing myself for the greater part of the afternoon, now in poring over advertisements, now in observing the promiscuous company in the room, and now in peering through the smoky panes into the street." This latter is one of the principal thoroughfares of the city, and has been very much crowded during the whole day. 
But as the darkness came on, the throng momentarily increased, and by the time the lamps were well lighted, two dense and continuous tides of population were rushing past the door. At this particular period of the evening, I had never before been in a similar situation, and the tumultuous sea of human heads filled me, therefore, with a delicious novelty of emotion. I gave up, at length, all care of things within the hotel, and became absorbed in contemplation of the scene without. At first, my observations took an abstract and generalizing turn. I looked at the passengers in masses and thought of them in their aggregate relations. Soon, however, I descended to details and regarded with minute interest the innumerable varieties of figure, dress, air, gait, visage, and expression of countenance. By far, the greater number of those who went by had a satisfied business-like demeanor and seemed to be thinking only of making their way through the press. Their brows were knit and their eyes rolled quickly when, pushed against by fellow wayfarers, they evinced no symptoms of impatience, but adjusted their clothes and hurried on. Others, still a numerous class, were restless in their movements, had flushed faces, and talked and gesticulated to themselves as if feeling in solitude on account of the very denseness of the company around. When impeded in their progress, these people suddenly ceased muttering, but redoubled their gesticulations and awaited, with an absent and overdone smile upon the lips, the course of the persons impeding them. If jostled, they bowed profusely to the jostlers and appeared overwhelmed with confusion. There was nothing very distinctive about these two large classes beyond what I have noted. Their habiliments belonged to that order which is pointedly termed the descent. They were undoubtedly noblemen, merchants, attorneys, tradesmen, stock jobbers, the eupatrids, and the commonplaces of society, men of leisure and men actively engaged in affairs of their own, conducting business upon their own responsibility. They did not greatly excite my attention." The tribe of clerks was an obvious one, and here I discerned two remarkable divisions. There were the junior clerks of flash houses, young gentlemen with tight coats, bright boots, well-oiled hair, and supercilious lips. Setting aside a certain dapperness of carriage, which may be termed deskism for want of a better word, the manner of these persons seemed to me an exact facsimile of what had been the perfection of Bonton about twelve or eighteen months before. They wore the cast-off graces of the gentry, and this, I believe, involves the best definition of the class. The division of the upper clerks of staunch firms, or of the steady old fellows, it was not possible to mistake. These were known by their coats and pantaloons of black or brown, made to sit comfortably with white cravats and waistcoats, broad, solid-looking shoes, and thick hose or gaiters. They had all slightly bald heads from which the right ears, long used to pen-holding, had an odd habit of standing off on end. I observed that they always removed or settled their hats with both hands and wore watches with short gold chains of a substantial and ancient pattern. Theirs was the affectation of respectability, if indeed there be an affectation so honorable. There were many individuals of dashing appearance whom I easily understood as belonging to the race of swell pickpockets with which all great cities are infested. I watched these gentry with much inquisitiveness and found it difficult to imagine how they should ever be mistaken for gentlemen by gentlemen themselves. Their voluminousness of wristband with an air of excessive frankness should betray them at once. The gamblers, of whom I described not a few, were still more easily recognizable. They wore every variety of dress, from that of the desperate thimble-rig bully with velvet waistcoat, fancy neckerchief, gilt chains, and filigreed buttons, to that of the scrupulously inornate clergyman, than which nothing could be less liable to suspicion. Still, all were distinguished by a certain sodden swarthiness of complexion, 
a filmy dimness of eye and pallor and compression of lip. There were two other traits, moreover, by which I could always detect them, a guarded lowness of tone in conversation, and a more than ordinary extension of the thumb in a direction at right angles with the fingers. Very often, in company with these sharpers, I observed an order of men somewhat different in habits, but still birds of a kindred feather. They may be defined as the gentlemen who live by their wits. They seem to prey upon the public in two battalions, that of the dandies and that of the military men. Of the first grade, the leading features are long locks and smiles, of the second, frogged coats and frowns. Descending in the scale of what is termed gentility, I found darker and deeper themes for speculation. I saw Jew peddlers with hawk eyes flashing from countenances whose every other feature wore only an expression of abject humility, sturdy professional street beggars scowling upon mendicants of a better stamp whom despair alone had driven forth into the night for charity, feeble and ghastly invalids upon whom death had placed a sure hand and who sidled and tottered through the mob, looking every one beseechingly in the face as if in search of some chance consolation, some lost hope. Modest young girls returning from long and late labor to a cheerless home and shrinking more tearfully than indignantly from the glances of ruffians whose direct contact even could not be avoided. Women of the town of all kinds and of all ages, the unequivocal beauty in the prime of her womanhood putting one in mind of the statue in Lucian with the surface of Parian marble and the interior filled with filth, the loathsome and utterly lost leper in rags, the wrinkled, bejeweled, and paint-begrimed beldam making a last effort at youth, the mere child of immature form, yet from long association an adept in the dreadful coquetries of her trade, and burning with a rabid ambition to be ranked the equal of her elders in vice, Drunkards, innumerable and indescribable, some in shreds and patches, reeling, inarticulate, with bruised visage and lackluster eyes, some in whole, although filthy, garments with a slightly unsteady swagger, thick, sensual lips, and hearty-looking rubicund faces, others clothed in materials which had once been good, and which even now were scrupulously well-brushed, men who walked with a more than naturally firm and springy step, but whose countenances were fearfully pale, whose eyes, hideously wild and red, and who clutched with quivering fingers as they strode through the crowd at every object which came within their reach. Besides these, pie-men, porters, coal-heavers, sweeps, organ-grinders, monkey-exhibitors, and ballad-mongers, those who vended with those who sang, ragged artisans and exhausted laborers of every description, and all full of a noisy and inordinate vivacity which jarred discordantly upon the ear and gave an aching sensation to the eye. As the night deepened, so deepened to me the interest of the scene, for not only did the general character of the crowd materially alter, its gentler features retiring in the gradual withdrawal of the more orderly portion of the people, and its harsher ones coming out into bolder relief as the late hour brought forth every species of infamy from its den, but the rays of the gas lamps, feeble at first in their struggle with the dying day, had now at length gained ascendancy and threw over everything a fitful and garish luster." All was dark yet splendid as that ebony to which has been likened the style of Tertullian. The wild effects of the light enchained me to an examination of individual faces, and although the rapidity with which the world of light flitted before the window prevented me from casting more than a glance upon each visage, still it seemed that, in my then peculiar mental state, I could frequently read, even in that brief interval of a glance, the history of long years. 
With my brow to the glass, I was thus occupied in scrutinizing the mob, when suddenly there came into view a countenance, that of a decrepit old man some sixty-five or seventy years of age, a countenance which at once arrested and absorbed my whole attention on account of the absolute idiosyncrasy of its expression. Anything even remotely resembling that expression I had never seen before. I well remember that my first thought upon beholding it was that wretch, had he viewed it, would have greatly preferred it to his own pictorial incarnations of the fiend. As I endeavored, during the brief minute of my original survey, to form some analysis of the meaning conveyed, there arose confusedly and paradoxically within my mind the ideas of vast mental power, of caution, of penuriousness, of avarice, of coolness, of malice, of bloodthirstiness, of triumph, of merriment, of excessive terror, of intense, of supreme despair. I felt singularly aroused, startled, fascinated. How wild a history, I said to myself, is written within that bosom. Then came a craving desire to keep the man in view, to know more of him. Hurriedly putting on an overcoat and seizing my hat and cane, I made my way into the street and pushed through the crowd in the direction which I had seen him take, for he had already disappeared. With some little difficulty, I at length came within sight of him, approached and followed him closely, yet cautiously, so as not to attract his attention. I had now a good opportunity of examining his person— he was short in stature, very thin, and apparently very feeble. His clothes, generally, were filthy and ragged, but as he came now and then within the strong glare of a lamp, I perceived that his linen, although dirty, was of beautiful texture, and my vision deceived me, or through a rent in a closely buttoned and evidently second-handed rocolaire which enveloped him, I caught a glimpse both of a diamond and of a dagger. These observations heightened my curiosity, and I resolved to follow the stranger whithersoever he should go. It was now fully nightfall, and a thick, humid fog hung over the city, soon ending in a settled and heavy rain. This change of weather had an odd effect upon the crowd, the whole of which was at once put into new commotion and overshadowed by a world of umbrellas. The waver, the jostle, and the hum increased in a tenfold degree. For my own part, I did not much regard the rain— the lurking of an old fever in my system rendering the moisture somewhat too dangerously pleasant. Tying a handkerchief about my mouth, I kept on. For half an hour, the old man held his way with difficulty along the great thoroughfare, and I here walked close at his elbow, through fear of losing sight of him. Never once turning his head to look back, he did not observe me. By and by, he passed into a cross street, which, although densely filled with people, was not quite so much thronged as the main one he had quitted— here, a change in his demeanor became evident. He walked more slowly and with less object than before, more hesitatingly. He crossed and recrossed the way repeatedly without apparent aim, and the press was still so thick that at every such movement I was obliged to follow him closely. The street was a narrow and long one, and his course lay within it for nearly an hour, during which the passengers had gradually diminished to about that number which is ordinarily seen at noon in Broadway near the park. So vast a difference is there between a London populace and that of the most frequented American city. The second turn brought us into a square, brilliantly lighted and overflowing with life. The old manner of the stranger reappeared. His chin fell upon his breast, while his eyes rolled wildly from under his knit brows. In every direction, upon those who hemmed him in, he urged his way steadily and perseveringly. 
I was surprised, however, to find upon his having made the circuit of the square that he turned and retraced his steps. Still more was I astonished to see him repeat the same walk several times, once nearly detecting me as he came round with a sudden movement. In this exercise he spent another hour, at the end of which we met with far less interruption from passengers than at first. The rain fell fast, the air grew cool, and the people were retiring to their homes. With a gesture of impatience, the wanderer passed into a by-street comparatively deserted. Down this, some quarter of a mile long, he rushed with an activity I could not have dreamed of seeing in one so aged, and which put me to much trouble in pursuit. A few minutes brought us to a large and busy bazaar, with the localities of which the stranger appeared well acquainted, and where his original demeanor again became apparent, as he forced his way to and fro, without aim, among the host of buyers and sellers. During the hour and a half, or thereabouts, which we passed in this place, it required much caution on my part to keep him within reach without attracting his observation. Luckily, I wore a pair of couchu overshoes and could move about in perfect silence. At no moment did he see that I watched him. He entered shop after shop, priced nothing, spoke no word, and looked at all objects with a wild and vacant stare. I was now utterly amazed at his behavior, and firmly resolved that we should not part until I had satisfied myself in some measure respecting him. A loud-toned clock struck eleven, and the company were fast deserting the bazaar. A shopkeeper, in putting up a shutter, jostled the old man, and at the instant I saw a strong shudder come over his frame. He hurried into the street, looked anxiously around him for an instant, and then ran with incredible swiftness through many crooked and peopleless lanes until we emerged once more upon the great thoroughfare whence we had started, the street of the D Hotel. It no longer wore, however, the same aspect. It was still brilliant with gas, but the rain fell fiercely, and there were few persons to be seen. The stranger grew pale. He walked moodily some paces up the once populous avenue, then with a heavy sigh turned in the direction of the river, and plunging through a great variety of devious ways came out at length in view of one of the principal theatres. It was about being closed, and the audience were thronging from the doors. I saw the old man gasp as if for breath while he threw himself amid the crowd, but I thought that the intense agony of his countenance had in some measure abated. His head again fell upon his breast. He appeared as I had seen him at first. I observed that he now took the course in which had gone the greater number of the audience, but upon the whole I was at a loss to comprehend the waywardness of his actions. As he proceeded, the company grew more scattered, and his old uneasiness and vacillation were resumed. For some time he followed closely a party of some ten or twelve roisterers, but from this number one by one dropped off until three only remained in a narrow and gloomy lane little frequented. The stranger paused, and for a moment seemed lost in thought, then, with every mark of agitation, pursued rapidly a route which brought us to the verge of the city amid regions very different from those we had hitherto traversed. It was the most noisome quarter of London, where everything wore the worst impression of the most deplorable poverty and of the most desperate crime. By the dim light of an accidental lamp, tall, antique, worm-eaten wooden tenements were seen tottering to their fall— in directions so many and capricious that scarce the semblance of a passage was discernible between them. The paving stones lay at random, displaced from their beds by the rankly growing grass. Horrible filth festered in the dammed-up gutters. The whole atmosphere teemed with desolation. 
Yet as we proceeded, the sounds of human life revived by sure degrees, and at length large bands of the most abandoned of a London populace were seen reeling to and fro. The spirits of the old man again flickered up as a lamp which is near its death hour. Once more he strode onward with elastic tread. Suddenly a corner was turned, a blaze of light burst upon our sight, and we stood before one of the huge suburban temples of intemperance, one of the palaces of the fiend Jinn. It was now nearly daybreak, but a number of wretched inebriates still pressed in and out of the flaunting entrance. With a half-shriek of joy, the old man forced a passage within, resumed at once his original bearing, and stalked backward and forward, without apparent object among the throng. He had not been thus long occupied, however, before a rush to the doors gave token that the host was closing them for the night. It was something even more intense than despair that I then observed upon the countenance of the singular being whom I had watched so pertinaciously. Yet he did not hesitate in his career, but with a mad energy retraced his steps at once to the heart of the mighty London. Long and swiftly he fled, while I followed him in the wildest amazement, resolute not to abandon a scrutiny in which I now felt an interest all-absorbing. The sun arose while we proceeded, and when we had once again reached the most thronged part of the populous town, the street of the D Hotel, it presented an appearance of human bustle and activity scarcely inferior to what I had seen on the evening before. And here, long, amid the momently increasing confusion, did I persist in my pursuit of the stranger. But, as usual, he walked to and fro, and during the day did not pass from out the turmoil of that street. And as the shades of the second evening came on, I grew wearied unto death, and, stopping fully in front of the wanderer, gazed at him steadfastly in the face. He noticed me not, but resumed his solemn walk, while I, ceasing to follow, remained absorbed in contemplation. "'This old man,' I said at length, "'is the type and the genius of deep crime. He refuses to be alone. He is the man of the crowd. It will be in vain to follow, for I shall learn no more of him nor of his deeds.' The worst heart of the world is a grosser book than the hortulous anime, and perhaps it is but one of the great mercies of God that it does not permit itself to be read. And that is the end of the story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to join me on Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. I appreciate all the support you give. Thank you all so much. Please go and get vaccinated for anything and everything you are able to get. If you see a racist or a bigot or... Okay, sorry, I need to go off on this. Roswell, Georgia, late last month, while I was in Boston. A bunch of Nazis with a swastika flag and everything just showed up and started protesting at a Jewish church. And I don't know if this is bravado or not, but I would have found or started a counter-protest and gone after them. Fuck Nazis. No, scratch that. You know what the better thing to do is? Film them. Record them. If possible, get their names and where they work. Report them to their work. Do your dead-level best to completely destroy their lives. Atrocities like that deserve so much worse. <clears throat> and always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>